Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Hey, it's me again. Just want to let you know we had a little mishap with the recording this week. All you missed is one or two minutes of the introduction and the rest of the sermon follows. Thanks. Why we're going to talk about it, because sometimes we just have to step back and we just got to dive a little bit deeper and get some pretty cool and pretty interesting, at least to me and I'm hoping to you. We, we got to get some details right to, to fully appreciate and understand uh, what we're about to uh, study. You see, today's sermon is a sermon about a sermon, right? It's, it's, it's different. I'm with you. I get it, and I'm going to do the best I can. But it's a sermon about a sermon because we've now come to Matthew chapter 5 um, in, in the book or the gospel of Matthew, and this is perhaps the most popular section of teachings in all scriptures from Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the what? Mount, right, yeah, Sermon on the Mount. And so we need to kind of step back before we dive too deeply into it to really understand what Matthew is trying to communicate to us because we can easily just gloss over this. We can not really appreciate what he's trying to tell us before we get to this teaching section because what he's specifically communicating to before and after the sermon is he's, he's telling us about the authority of Jesus Christ. Right, he needs us to understand because what Jesus is about to tell us and the things he's going to say, it, it's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. He's not politically correct. He's going to get to the heart of a lot of issues, and there's a lot of things you're not going to like. But before we get to that, I don't really like this part, we need to understand the authority part. How many of you had your parents tell you things you didn't particularly care for? But why did they tell them? Why did they tell you? Because they're what? Your parents. They're like, because I'm your parent, which gave this, them authority to do that kind of thing. But here's why this is so very important. I believe what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount is his vision for his followers. This is what Christians are called to live out. And here's what I guarantee. There's going to be some things you're quite offended by. There's going to be things you just don't particularly care for. There's some things you're just going to say, nope. I don't want to do it. But what I need us to understand is this is his vision for us as Jesus followers. And I don't know about you, but at least for me, when I don't particularly care for something, I'll find reasons why it's not true or why it can't be true just because I don't want to do it. Right? I'll just try to discredit it or dismantle it and convince myself, well, that this really, it might be for my neighbor, but it's not for me. Y'all ever done that? Don't lie, you're in church. Yeah, we get uncomfortable, so we try to figure out ways to give us a pass. But these teachings from Jesus is his vision for his followers. And we're going to take some time to really hone in on why this is serious. It is so serious because I, I believe the reason why this is such a big deal is because Christians don't take it serious enough. But he gives us 50 imperatives. 50 things he wants us to do. Do this and don't do this. 
And I think the core of this message is for his followers. Us as his followers, we don't particularly, pay, um, we don't particularly care for it. And I believe partly this is why Christianity has lost its influence in our culture. Gandhi says it best this way. He says, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Studies show that Christianity has lost its influence in our culture. In 1972, 90% of Americans identified as Christians. Today, only 64%. You can blame my generation all you want, but I wasn't around then. In fact, studies show the fastest growing religious group in our country are the nuns which is non-affiliated, don't want anything to do with religion, and that's up to 30% of our country now. In fact, only 36% of my generation, the millennials, are in church. And I know why. It's not hard to figure out. I, I am that age group. I see it all around. They're tired. They're tired of what people say they believe not matching with how they behave of who this Jesus is and what he says he's come to do and who he says he is, not matching with the very followers who are saying, I I'm a Christian. You look and you're like, hey, this, this isn't adding up. And, and if you didn't grow up in a religious upbringing, I know many of you didn't. If you don't know about church, if you didn't grow up, your parents didn't drag you to it every week, well, then you associate Christianity with the loud people on TV or politics or whatever else is going around on social media. But Jesus' vision for Christians is so different than that. What he says it looks like to live under him and to follow him is very different than what Christians are known for today. And that's what we need to rediscover, Jesus' vision on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower. Because what we know to be true, 2,000 years ago, they changed the world. 2,000 years ago, this small group of Jesus followers went around telling everybody that this man, Jesus, died and rose again, and it literally changed history. But why then? Why then do we, as Christians, discount these teachings from Jesus? Well, we push them aside. We have our agenda. We have our vision. We, he, we know what's important. We know what needs to change. We, we know what it was like when we grew up, and we can't believe what these other people are doing. So, so we need to enforce our way and our preferences. But folks, that's not Jesus' future. That's not what he has. We don't want to push aside his vision or his morals or his ethics. As Christians, we want to embrace his vision and allow him to uncomfortably change our lives. You see, what's so interesting about Jesus is he goes after the individual. He goes after us, each one of us to personally change, to follow him. And it all comes down to authority. Who's in charge? I mean, who's in charge of your life? You see, Matthew knows what, what he's about to tell us, the, the teachings he's going to lay out for us. He's like, look, this is going to be rough. 
So let's get this straight up front. Jesus has all authority. At the end of the sermon, we're going to see it today, he communicates Jesus has authority. At the end of the book, in Matthew 28, Jesus is going to say all authority on heaven and earth. Like This is an authority claim, meaning you don't have a choice. If you're going to be his follower, he's in charge. You are not. And as radical as his teachings are, the things that's going to hit us to the core, you have to understand is we've been living with them for 2,000 years. Imagine how radical they were to the first century audience who had never heard of something like this, whose culture had no idea about this stuff. And he comes into teachings. You're talking about being radically having to change. Our parents at least taught us some of this stuff, whether they were Christian or not, because it's just, well, good stuff. But it comes down to authority. And that's what Matthew's letting us know when he jumps right in. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. It says, One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. Now remember where we left off last week. At the end of chapter 4, in chapter 4, Jesus called his followers He took them around. He went around preaching and teaching, hearing all sorts of miracles, all sorts of, excuse me, doing all sorts of miracles, healing all sorts of diseases, and people would gather around. I mean, what Jesus did was very attractional. He attracted the crowd so they would come and hear his message. Jesus didn't sit back at the temple and hang out by himself and say, hey, when you need something, just come to me. That's what the religious leaders did. What Jesus did is he went around, he met people where they were at, and was very attractional so he could tell them about himself and his message. So once again, Jesus has this large crowd. He sees them coming around, and he goes up on the mountains and starts teaching. And and who does he start to teach? All right, his disciples. This is the very first time the word disciple is used in the gospel of Matthew. Um, This is directed towards them. Last week, we talked about what a disciple is, someone whose mind and head is being transformed by Jesus because of our beliefs. And then Jesus does a good work in our life and our heart, and he's constantly changing us. And then he puts our hands to work. Remember, if you, if you missed that last week, you can go online and, and catch, it, um, catch up. But Matthew identifies in his, gospel, these, in his gospel these three groups of people. You have Jesus teaching his disciples, which are his followers, the people committed to him. You have the larger crowds who are interested in him, just going, wow, he's doing some pretty interesting things. Let me lean in and learn, see what's going on. And then you have the religious leaders who are very anti-Jesus. They're like, hey, we don't like that he's changing things. We don't like what he's doing. They end up Well, taking them to Rome to be crucified. That's how they felt about him. We'll come back to this. And so we see Jesus go up on the mountainside, sit down, and start teaching. Now, when we talk about a mountain here in in Conway, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, this area, when we talk about mountains, for most of you, this ends up being your happy place. It's very interesting. I lived in the mountains for three and a half, four years. And everybody in the mountains, what did they think of their happy place as? The beach. And everybody at the beach says, I don't like the beach. I want to go to the mountains. It's weird. Humans are weird individuals, right? And so you think of this happy place. But for a Jewish reader, a Bible reader, the mountain is signaling a very big deal. I mean, this is a big deal. This is the start of God doing something. Remember when Moses, when God, through Moses, Moses led the people out of Egypt, 
They go through the wilderness. They end up going to the mountain where Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments. You remember that? The Big Ten and the rest of the law. This was on a mountaintop. And so far, we've already seen uh, Matthew signal to us this idea of Moses and Jesus being pretty connected. We've seen that both Jesus and Moses had the slaughter of innocent children connected to the birth. We see both of them barely escaping, whether it's Pharaoh or the king's plot to kill them. Both had to flee their home only to return later. Both Jesus and Moses were in the wilderness. Both had a significant dealing with water, Moses through the Red Sea. Remember, it parted Jesus and his baptism. We looked at a couple of weeks ago. And now, once again, we see Jesus, like Moses, on this mountainside. And now, instead of giving the Ten Commandments, now we see Jesus telling his way, his vision, this is what it looks like to live as the people of God. So Matthew is very clearly showing us that this idea of Moses, if you're Bobber, if you're Jewish, which that's Matthew's audience, Jewish people would have instantly picked up, hey, something, something's interesting, something significant's going on, because he's, he's looking a lot like Moses. Like, there's a lot going on in his life that's connected to Moses. I mean, Moses was the lawgiver. He's the one who directly heard from God, and he told us from the mountain what we're supposed to do. Now, Jesus is doing something very, very similar. And so we see this connection between Jesus and Moses. But Moses, but after the resurrection, this is pretty cool. After the resurrection, Jesus encountered his, some disciples on the, road of, uh, on the road of Emmaus. And they were really confused about what's going on. And Jesus, well, he does this. Luke tells us this. Luke 24, 27. It says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining for them all the scriptures All of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So here's what we know. Jesus, after he rose from the grave, he went back and he told his disciples, hey, all this stuff in the Old Testament, it's actually pointing to me. So what we see is for Matthew, it's not that Matthew is necessarily just making the connection to Moses. It's that the whole life of Moses was pointing to something greater to come. That the whole story of Israel, the story of Moses, was pointing to someone who's going to come and be greater. It's as if God was getting the nation of Israel ready for this Messiah. It's as if we see the life of the Messiah sprinkled in through the stories, right? They didn't, uh, not everybody could read back then. They didn't have pocket Bibles. Like, well, I couldn't put in that in my pocket, but you get my point. They didn't have Bibles to just walk around with. So it's all communicated by stories. And so the story of Moses and what he went through, it sounds so familiar to the story in the life of Jesus. It's as if God was getting them ready. Hey, that you've heard about this in the past. When you see it right in front of you, When you see it in the life of this other person, it should send a signpost. It should send a signal that, hey, we've heard about this before. This sounds a lot like what God's done in the past. Could he be moving now in the present? And Paul, the New Testament writer, Paul, the Jewish scholar, I mean, he picks up on this idea and boy, does he run with it throughout his letters. 
where he just makes these connections about Jesus and the Messiah and the Old Testament and how it all comes together. And so Jesus is in fact fulfilling the law. He's fulfilling this stuff that Moses was pointing to, that Moses' life was pointing to, which then makes this make sense. We'll look at it in a couple weeks, but I just want to show you now, Matthew 5. Jesus says stuff like this. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Like This is a big deal, Christian. Jesus came to accomplish it. Like It was pointing to something. It had a purpose. There was a reason. And Jesus is like, yeah, to me, which is a huge claim, which is a big deal. This shouldn't be taken lightly. And so Jesus is teaching, he's about to teach the, the new law, the new vision for God's people as the new but greater than Moses. So going back to the verse, Matthew 5, 1 through 2. One day as he saw the crowds gather, Jesus went up onto the mountainside, which is like, wow, this is what Moses did, and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. So Jesus's primary audience here was a disciple, which is rather important for us to understand in the purpose of the sermon, which we're going to get into. Because throughout church history, there's been several different arguments about how to actually understand the Sermon on the Mount. And here's why. You're like, why would there be different ways to think about it? Because have you tried to do it? Try to live it out. You'd be like, I don't, I, am I actually supposed to do this stuff? This is crazy. And so people have come through. There's four primary ways that people have talked about this is what it looks like. First off, you have the entrance to the kingdom requirement. Some have read the Sermon on the Mount saying, hey, this is the way to get in the kingdom of God. They have some arguments about some things Jesus says. We'll get to that later. But they point out, they're like, okay, look, in order to be a Jesus follower, you actually have to do all of this stuff. Again, read it, on yourself. read it for yourself. It's super challenging. But what they miss out is there's a difference between kingdom ethics and then being saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So we know it can't be an entrance into there because the entrance is only found through him. Another way of people look at this is it's an impossible ideal. This was popularized by Martin Luther, and he suggested that the standards in the sermon are so high just to point to your fallenness. Meaning Jesus cast a vision like, here's all the stuff you're supposed to do. I know you can never accomplish them, which should lead you to his grace and show you how sinful you are, very much like the law did for the Jewish person. But what Luther doesn't get right and what he doesn't distinguish is that Jesus' primary audience is who? Yeah, people who've already committed their life to him. He's teaching them what it looks like to live. Number three, we have an example for another age. And this is what I learned about. And listen, this was the most confusing thing for me of all. Um, one of the, the, the seminar I went to, one of the primary ways they taught was dispensation theology. We don't need to get in all that. But what it's saying is, hey, this is actually for the future reign of Christ. Like for the thousand, little, the thousand year reign of Christ, like this is a kingdom ethics for that. I was like, but it seems to be telling them to do it now. I don't, I don't, and it was very confusing how they looked at the kingdom and this. We don't need to get into it. I didn't understand it then. Don't expect everybody to get it now. But anyways, a lot of people point to, well, this isn't really just for you now, Christian. Like, don't, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's for an, a, a, 
later on. This other time, then you need to worry about it, which if that was true, it'd be a lot easier. But that's not, that, that's not the purpose either. And then another place, another idea is the optional elitism. And, and the idea behind here is that you have the Sermon on the Mount, and that's just for his disciples, but not really for believers. And what they distinguish is between a believer and a disciple, and I wish this was true. I really wish you could just be a Christian without having to be a disciple. It would make me sleep so much better at night. But unfortunately, it's not found in the Bible or the idea anywhere in there. So to be a disciple is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, meaning it's for all of us. And so all of these ideas about how to work through this sermon come from a place of people believing in biblical authority, trying their best to take the teachings of Jesus serious. And so how do we take it? Well, the best thing for us is to just listen to Jesus. If we go to the end of the sermon, he gives us a hint on how to take this. Matthew 7. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follow it is, say it with me, wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes and it torments and the floods rise and the wind beats against the house, it won't collapse because it's built on a bedrock. So with all the storms and the floods we get around here, this passage is super realistic. All right, how many people had to make adjustments to their house because of the flood a couple of years ago? Plenty of you, right? So you get this idea of flood and the problems it causes. And Jesus is saying if you build your life on his teachings, all the storms and the floods and the problems in life are going to happen, but you'll still stand. You'll, still be, you'll be able to withstand them. In other words, the wise build their life on Jesus Christ. The wise build their life on the teachings of Jesus. He says in verse 26, but, but anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who built his house on sand, when the rain and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And all I can think about is all the times I've tried with my kids to build sand castles on the beach. Y'all ever done that? Yeah, how long do they last? No matter how much you try to protect them and you build little moats around it because you weren't finished and the water rose up, yeah, no matter, it doesn't work. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you ignore him, you're foolish. And can I be honest? Many of you are fools. Because we ignore it. We act like it's not a big deal. And I've been foolish plenty of times. But this is Jesus. So how do you think he wants us to take this? Well, you can be wise, you can be a fool. Seems pretty clear, doesn't he? It seems like he's pretty clear, like, hey, this is a big deal. If you want your house to just fall apart, your life to just fall apart, for it to just be a wreck, ignore me. Or lean in and listen. There's this authority issue coming in. Here's what he says, or here's what the crowds took from this verse 28. It says, well, when Jesus has finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Again, this authority thing. So Matthew bookends this section with first letting us know that Jesus is the new Moses. He's on the mountain. He's casting a vision for here's what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. And he sits down, teaches his disciples. The crowds come around and lean in and listen. And so here, the crowds are leaning in, listening to Jesus, teach his disciples, going, what does this guy have to offer? But what's different about Jesus is he's teaching from his own authority. 
And this is pretty simple to see. For instance, when I'm teaching up here, or hopefully anybody from the church we're teaching you, I'm not teaching you on my own authority. I have nothing to say. I'm teaching you what God's word says. God's word, I'm pointing to a TV right now. I hope you get the Bible's right here. I'm teaching you what this has the authority. I have none. And so I'm just teaching you from the authority that, well, God's word has. And when a religious teacher taught back then, they would point to Moses. They would point to the Torah. They would point to some other authority greater than themselves. But when Jesus taught, he pointed to himself. It's like, I have the right and the ability to just lay things down, which is like, man, that's a pretty big claim. He's like, I know. Like everything he's doing. And so they were amazed, like, who who talks like this? Who teaches like this? Who can just come up with their own thing? I mean, he's coming up with his own way as if he's God. Because only he can do that. So Jesus is radically different. He is pointing to himself. He's pointing to his vision for the kingdom life. And Matthew is rather clear. First century audience would have picked this up. I hope you're picking it up too. This is all about authority. Before we get into the sermon, we got to settle this authority question. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he Lord of all? Is he the Messiah? We, we aren't before Easter like they were. They had a pat. They were like, I don't know. We're trying to figure this out. We're after Easter. Easter. He's died. He's rose again. And now we have to answer that question. Do, do we trust him? Are we going to trust him with our lives? And so everything about Jesus, everything about what he's teaching is for his disciples, for you and me to actually live out. And to put the final nail in this coffin, you'll see why once we get into the sermon, you're like, I don't know if I'm going to do that. We're going to put the final nail in the coffin to understand this is for disciples, for us to actually do. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, I mentioned it a minute ago. He says this, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and earth. I've been given all authority in the entire cosmos. That is a massive claim, folks. You can't think of yourself any grander than that. The entire cosmos is in my control. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Let's pause there. Here's that authority issue. But as you see, and we've talked about before, Jesus' command is like, look, all authority is mine. He tells his disciples, I need you to go make more disciples. I need you to go help other people follow me. I need you to tell them about me. I need them to be baptized and then teach them everything I taught. They're like, okay, we can do this, Jesus. Disciple teaching, we get that. Now, here's what becomes radically clear for us. The very first word, that the very first time in Matthew, we see the word disciple is in Matthew chapter 5. Right in front of Jesus' first major teaching section. Which should be a clue that if I'm teaching new disciples to obey all the commands he's given them, perhaps I should go back to see what he taught his, what? Disciples. So the idea that the Sermon on the Mount is not for us, not for Jesus' followers. It's very contrary to what Jesus taught himself and what Matthew is clearly communicating once we dig just a little bit. 
This is the discipleship manual for us. This is what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. And it's going to turn you, it's going to turn our world upside down. Every single thing you think is important, Jesus is like, nope. Not important. We're like, yeah, but Jesus, I mean, he's like, authority issue. It's an authority issue. Do you believe him? He came and flipped up everything upside down. You're like, yeah, but Brian, no, but listen, the king of the universe came and was crucified for you and me. Talk about flipping everything upside down. He didn't come and just build this elaborate kingdom, start a new political system, start a new governance, and like, hey, look, here's a kingdom of this world. No, no, no. This is a kingdom not of this world. This is something very different that he calls you and me to. This is what radical discipleship looks like. And one more thing, we're almost done. The problem with this, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, we can't actually do it. While Jesus paints this picture of the kingdom life, I want you this week to try to do everything Jesus says in there. Just for real, do it. And he's like, hey, give everything to the poor. You'll be like, hmm, I'm going to ignore Brian on that one. We're just going to move on. Like what Jesus says in here, you can't actually pull off. But what I want you to do, especially if you think you're a good person, I want you to do your best in your own power to do everything Jesus says to do. Because there needs to come a point in your life and a point in my life where we try to be this good person to find out that we're not very good people. The only way to find out you're not a very good person is by trying to be a good person. And then you're like, you know what? Probably not that good. I can't even drive on 501 with that traffic and be a good person. <laughs> but you need to try on your own power to do this good works type of stuff. So then you will find out that you absolutely cannot do it. And that is where the gospel comes into play. Because when you realize that you can't do it, that you're not good enough, then you're reliant and dependent upon the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And it's in his grace that we can start accomplishing the things he's asked us to accomplish. You see, the claim we've seen, the claim we will continue to see is that Jesus has all authority. He is the one in charge. And him being in charge, he came down to die for our sinfulness. He substituted himself for us. And it's when we surrender to him, we find life. And he invites us in this kingdom under his divine protection, under what he has accomplished. He's saying, come in under my grace, under what I've done, and then you can live. And so you and me, we have to come to this place where we live in and out of the grace of God. We live in it knowing that we are saved by Christ and nothing else, that we can't do it. We aren't good enough. There's, there's nothing we can do to point to our accomplishments to be right with God. And then out of that, we live in out of his grace, meaning his grace empowers us and his presence empowers us to actually carry out what this radical upside down kingdom of this world looks like. Not because we want to, but because he does a good work in our lives and we realize that this is all for him and this is his way. And the things that we naturally want to do, they're probably not good for us to do anyways. And he empowers us to live out these kingdom values through his 
grace. You see, I don't believe Jesus gives us a vision for discipleship that's impossible with his help. It's impossible in our own efforts. But the Um, this whole sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is what he wants to accomplish in us and through us. And that is amazing. This is who are we to become. This is the good works he wants to do. And so what I want you to do this week, I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to wrestle with this idea that Jesus has called you into this vision of this kingdom life. He's saying, come on, here's what I want you to do. But you can't do it. And even though you can't do it, he invites you to do it. And then says, I know you can't do it, but when you come to the end of yourself, you're going to find me. And when you find me, I'm going to go ahead and empower you to be able to do it. So I want you to wrestle with this idea that as a Christian, we are utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ. That we need him in our everything. We need him in our marriages. We need him in our business dealings. We need him in our relationships with our children. We need him in absolutely everything. And when we think about that, just think about your life this week. How often do you include Christ in what you do and what you say and what you watch? How often is Christ involved in that? You see, Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is one of the most powerful messages in the history of the world. It's led to more movements than we can count. It's made radical changes in everyday people. And people from all faith backgrounds are attracted to the ethics and the morals of Jesus Christ. But they're not attracted to Christians today, folks. That's a problem. Because we are not living out kingdom values. We're not taking it serious of what it means to be a Jesus follower. But we can. We can rediscover his teachings. We can act like this is the first time we've read them. We can be empowered by the grace of God through the grace of God to carry out this kingdom vision, to see life transformation. And we're going to unpack all of what he says. We're going to discover this hyperbole where Jesus makes exaggerated statements. So when you are reading it, be careful. Don't cut anything off yet. If you're like, what do you mean? Read it for yourself. You'll see. Don't start chopping limbs off yet. We'll get there. But Christians, here's my point. If you're a Christian, this is the stuff you need to focus on. Matthew 5 and 7. Matthew 5 through 7. This is what Jesus' kingdom vision is about. And I need you to read through that. That's your homework this week. I want you to read through the Sermon on the Mount because what you're going to see in the news, what you're going to see on social media, what you're going to concern yourself with everyday things will be radically different than the things that Jesus tells you to concern yourself with. And when that happens, what do you do? What voice do you listen to? Do you allow yourself to get worked up how everything needs to change? Or do you listen to Jesus and go, hey, I I need to change. Man, I still need to forgive that guy. I still need to grow in this. Wow. I'm not loving the way I need to. And so that's your homework. Your homework this week is if you can, every day, I understand you're busy. It shouldn't take you more than 10 minutes. But every day, I, I I ask you to investigate this sermon. Ask you to walk through and just listen to the words of Jesus and look at his vision 
for Christians. And instead of beating anybody else up, instead of telling your spouse to come on in here, look, I think you need to read this. Y'all ever done that with the Bible? It's not a good way to use the Bible. I, I want you to read it and go, man, I, I need to work on that. And, and in that moment, I want you to talk to God about it. Like, man, God, I, I fail here. And what I'd love for you to do, if you haven't done this before, I'd love you to develop this relationship with Jesus where you're talking about what's going on in here. And when you're being radically challenged by his vision and your vision, and when those two worlds collide, you're struggling with him and you're, and you're fighting with him about it and you're talking with him about it. Stop talking to social media. Start talking to him. And say, Lord, I, this, this is hard. I don't know what to do. Folks, that is such a beautiful place to do, crying out to God, such a beautiful place to be. Start there. Start arguing with him. It's okay. You start struggling through what he says versus how you are living and start there. Because what I ask you is this, and what I want you to think through is what if, what if Jesus means what he says in there? If you're like, oh, Brian, it doesn't sound like big of a deal. Just read it. Those of you who are familiar with it, I see your faces. Those of you who are not, I see your face. It's okay. Just read it. Because it's ridiculously challenging. But what if this was his vision? What if these are the things he wants us fighting for? Not about what everybody else is doing, but about what you're doing. About what he's doing in your life. And what if he wants you to focus on forgiving others and loving others and taking care of the needy? Like, what if Christians got back to those things? Can you imagine the difference we would make in the world? I can. We've done it before. But it comes to authority. Who's in charge? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us be kingdom people. Help us take the mission and the message of Jesus serious as we start working through his sermon. Father, help us be wise. Help us not be fools, ignoring and discrediting and just putting off what you've taught us to do. Lord, this morning we are reminded of your grace, knowing that we cannot do these things on our own effort, but we have to be completely and utterly dependent upon you for them. And so, Father, we are deeply indebted to your grace and love. And out of that overflowing love, we ask you to help us reflect you into the world. Father, we love you. Help us continue to experience and live out of that sweet salvation found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Will you stand?